did it. I didn't talk through the whole thing. I love that intro. I so missed that the last year. Life is good, everybody. Here we are. It's April. It's 2022. I have an excellent guest that I've been wanting to have on my show for so long now. Uh, but because he's a busy boy and because COVID was here, it's been a while since I finally could bring him in. But um, we're going to get to him in just one second. First, I want to say New York State, the recreational cannabis industry is almost upon us. I cannot tell you all how exciting it is. I don't know if anybody's everybody's aware of it now. I'm hoping by the time I put this up, everybody will be aware of it. But as of April 15th, the eligible hemp growers of New York State that met all the classifications and qualifications, excuse me, uh, to become eligible for the THC program have started to apply. I believe the number is up to 80 right now um, as of Saturday or Sunday of this weekend. That would be March 26th, 27th that I've heard that have completed their applications. Uh, and I think there's another about 100 or 120 eligible. Uh, so we'll see how this process plays out. But it looks like Within the next 30 days, folks, we are going to have seeds in the ground in our first official New York State grown THC. Oh, if I had some applause right now, I'd be doing it. So today we have the second phase of this food chain that we call the plant cannabis. Uh, We have a member of a processing company here in Rochester, New York. I happen to work with Seth. Um, He is a chemist. He does a little formulating. He does a little bit of testing. He does a little bit of everything. Chemist uh, Seth is well-versed at many things, and this is going to be a fun conversation today. So who I have today is Seth Brophy from Rochester, New York. Seth, say hello. Hi, Brian. Oh, I'm so excited for this episode. So first, let's talk provisional licensing. You know, how about first we talk about that dance you were doing while your music was playing? Oh. We got to get that recorded. <laughs> uh, I thought that was going to go unnoticed and unsaid. So apparently, well, you and I will discuss that later. Mm-hmm. But yes, there was a little dance. Um, I am excited, to be honest. I have a lot of energy coming off of some cannabis events here in Rochester this weekend. And I want to put some very big kudos out to two organizations who put on events Friday and Saturday in Rochester. Uh, The city of Rochester and Community College of the Finger Lakes specifically uh, hosted two events, uh, basically educating local potential entrepreneurs, students, uh, people currently in the industry, people who want to get in the industry, to educate them on what services are available uh, for them to get ready for the licensing official licensing, which will be out within the next two years, and the provisionals licensing in all three phases that are going on right now. And there were panels both days. City of Rochester was at a cool theater, the the theater at Innovation Way, I believe it is. Uh, It is right in the city of Rochester. I didn't even know that theater was there. Very cool setup. I would say there was a couple hundred people there. And then CCFL obviously has great resources there. And we had someone from the OCM as well as some local politicians at both events to really talk to everybody about social equity growing and what's going to be happening in the next couple months. Uh, also I want to put a little plug out there to 
Glenna Calapretti. I know I'm saying her name wrong, but she really was behind the scenes, did a lot of the hard labor in putting these events on. I just want to give her kudos, as well as City Councilman Mike Patterson, who has really pushed Rochester to the cusp of leading of every city in the state right now as far as getting ready for this industry. I'm extremely impressed with him, and I met Mayor... Um, of Rochester, Malik. I met him on Friday as well, and he was a very genuine guy who really wants to see this industry flourish within Rochester. And him and Mr. Patterson are doing everything they can to make sure Rochester is ready. Uh, I don't believe Syracuse has had any events right now um, grouping people together for the cannabis industry, and I'm not aware of anything going on in Buffalo either. Uh, Albany, I believe, had a couple, and New York City's had a couple. Uh, there's a company down there putting on some good events, some revelry events. Uh, but Rochester really now, we've had about four events where we've drawn in the local politicians, people from Legacy Market and current growers and processors, and we've really had some good conversations. So I'm excited about that, and I'm sorry I'm cutting into your time, time Seth, but this is really important for the state, and I'm very excited of the type of people the state has putting this together because they're looking out for the state stakeholders, uh, which is phenomenal. But that's enough of that. Now let's get to my... Seth, did you have a hard day today? Was it a good day? How, when you go into work, do you smile every day? Is this something you enjoy doing? You are now in the cannabis industry. It is an experience. I'm not going to say every day is a good day, but more days than not, I'm enjoying myself there. Uh, there's always problems to solve and puzzles to do. How old are you, Seth? I am 32. Did you or your parents ever think that you someday, one day would be working in the cannabis industry? Absolutely not. I don't even like weed. What, uh, what's your history of consumption? Um, minimal. Uh, tried some stuff in college. Didn't really do anything for me. Uh, tried again later. Didn't really do anything for me. I've actually consumed more THC working where I work now than the rest of my life put together. And um, still ate it. Delivery method's a, a big piece of that, obviously, and before it was probably mostly uh, either edibles or smoking, I'm sure, in your past history. All smoking in the past, yeah. Um, now, your parents, uh, neither one of them are, co are consumers of cannabis, or are they in some way or not, or do they have a history, or, or is your family, like, scientific, like, from you through? Is it, is it a scientific family you're from? Uh, so, both my parents are PhDs. Um, their parents were all brilliant in their own way. Uh, I'm, I'm following... In very large footsteps. Uh, when it comes to consumption, you know, mom will occasionally fess up to trying something in college. Uh, that's about it. Uh, though dad recently had cancer, um, did recover, uh, some pretty bad leukemia. And, um, they did give him, uh, THC pills to help stimulate appetite and all that. Is that Marinol? Mm, I do not remember the brand. I didn't really look at him. Um, but I can say that he was not a fan. I didn't really do anything for him. Uh, we were talking about processes to try and improve effect. And eventually he actually got a, a brownie from a neighbor, uh, a little something to help out because they heard he had cancer. And, uh, he tried that. Also hated it. It's just my family does not do great with THC. 
and that's uh, that goes to say something about how genes kind of play into things sometimes, and how certain families can have certain characteristics that they, either they you know gravitate or have certain health issues, or, or, or but you tend to tend to have tendencies within gene pools like that. That's interesting. Um, what do you get? What what heritage nationality are you guys? Uh, so dad's very different from mom. Mom's almost hundred percent German. A little bit of Scandinavian thrown in there. You know how it is being a Euro mutt. Yeah, my family's same. Yeah, yeah. Uh, dad much more British Isles. A lot of Scottish, a lot of Irish, and a, a good bit from Montenegro. Sounds pretty close. Other than Montenegro, it sounds like pretty much my family dynamic exactly. I'm heavy German on my mom's side, and my dad's side is kind of from the British Isles, which is kind of funny. Yep. Um, and Seth and I always have very good deep conversations, so we always have. What what is what's your astrology sign? I forgot to ask you that. You're gonna ask me about astrology, yeah. Right yeah, now. We're, yeah. I want to go on a date. The scientist, yeah. you're gonna ask me about. I'm an Aries. Thank you. All right, we're both Aries. <laughs> that's why we got the connection, uh, Seth. Oh, so that's why. All right. <laughs> um, among other things, mm. um, so what uh, what's has surprised you the most in the cannabis industry so far? Ooh. Man, this is a this is a pretty shocking industry, honestly. Um, and there's different things depending on, you know, what sort of lens I'm looking at things through. I'm looking at things through the scientific lens. Well, just how asynchronous and how varied um, all the different testing methods and production methods are. There's no standard way of doing anything yet. And that's both shocking and in some cases a little disturbing. Um, otherwise... You know, I'm used to small business. Before this, I was working at a small business. I'm used to characters. I'm used to working for people who are out there and bombastic. So I wasn't too shaken when I met, at the time, the seven owners of the current company. Yeah, and, and you uh, certainly fit right into the crew at the company you work at now, which is No Wave. Um, now, prior, tell, let's get into what's led you to No Wave, because I'm always interested in people's paths, right? So uh, when, when you were born, you had uh, parents with PhDs. And obviously, I, I couldn't even imagine having that. I mean, the weight of the expectations uh, you're putting on yourself, probably not even them, um, but just you seeing what they're accomplishing, you're like, oh, crap, I got to get that. I got I to gotta reach that to be in the right. Now, or they didn't hold you to that standard, I have a feeling, right? Were they parents that really said, hey, you better get a PhD, son, or you're done, or how did it, how did it play out? No, they've never said that. Um, after high school, I was always much harder on myself than they ever were. Uh, you know, they definitely pushed me to get good grades, pushed me to go to school. Um, but I remember when I was looking for, uh, you know, programs to join, schools to go to, um, at first I, want, I said, hey, I want to go into psychology. I like people. I like talking to people. I like helping people. I like getting hands-on. And uh, I kind of stopped and said, man, both my parents are optical engineers. I need to go hard science. And it was absolutely a conversation I had with myself. And uh, if I hadn't felt that pressure, again, from, from me, not from them, they never said, hey, you better be an engineer. Um, if I hadn't done that, I'd probably have a very different life right now. No regrets though, right? Oh no, no regrets. I've had a great time. Life's been a roller coaster. So obviously, uh, high school, you, you you got yourself in position. You went to college. You, um, you took care of yourself. You got your your chemistry. You're a chemist. You come out. What was your first job after you got out of school? Uh, first job after school, uh, I was actually finishing up being a gas station attendant. 
when I was in Buffalo um, going to UB, I got a job down the street from me. I worked overnights. Um, honestly, it was it was a good gig. Uh, I was young enough where I could, you know, be working from 11 p.m. to 8 a.m. And that wasn't a problem. Um, it wasn't awesome at going to class as a result, but, you know, it's it's college. Yeah. Uh, after that, I was back to Rochester, did my boomerang uh, like my generation did. And uh, pretty quickly, I got my first chemistry job um, working at Big Sky Technologies. And tell me... Uh... Big Sky, now that's in Rochester, small business suit, like you were saying, right? Very small. Um, so tell me what they do and what you did um, while you worked there. So Big Sky Technologies was kind of a weird company. It had two major divisions, despite having all of five employees. Um, and one division makes the world's best kayak paddles. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating. It's not, hey, I worked for these people. They got really cool stuff. Go check them out. No, Lendl North America legitimately has, in my opinion some of the world's best kayak paddles. What differentiates theirs from others? I always love hearing stuff like this. Well, uh, they are all composite, uh, carbon fiber. Uh, the resins they use are, they were developed for the aeronautics industry. Um, they're incredibly durable. You can chop down a tree with one of these things. The entire kayak pedal weighs all of two pounds. Uh, the designs and blades are all proprietary to them. Um, they've been designed by Olympic-level athletes. And... Uh, Honestly, they've got some really cool materials technology going on. Not only that, the decorations, uh, I worked with them on this. This was like my last big project with them. We got these custom decals done um, in this ultra-thin fiberglass. And so it would lay in this fiberglass veil. And your decal is not only protected from the sun, it's protected from everything. It's under the protective layer of resin that makes up the outside of your blade. Wow. Now, uh, is there a website? Is it Big Sky Technologies? If people are interested in this, if they're kayakers, I know my son-in-law is, so I'm now I'm interested in maybe trying to right. find one of these for him. Yeah. I mean, they're about six hundred bucks a pop. These, Sounds like they're worth the it. Good though. stuff. They last one hundred percent worth it. And they're all done by hand. Everything by hand. These guys cut their own molds out of aluminum on a giant CNC machine. They don't want anybody else getting their blade designs. That's incredible. And this is Lendl North America or LendlNA.com. And I will always plug them. They were great to me as first employers. I love that. And that's what I love uh, when employees leave a place and they can have that relationship. That That's a strong showing of who you are as a person. Uh, so tell me about the other division because I know that's where you really was kind of uh, your baby. And uh, this is really intriguing to me because I love patents and I love uh, formulations. And, and I know nothing about this industry. So tell me a little bit about their other division. Yeah, so their other division was called Green Shield. Uh, that's both the product name. And the company name. And uh, Green Shield makes a, a finish, a protective finish for fabrics. Uh, think Scotchgard, only like produced on an industrial scale and made for applying on industrial processes. Um, so this kind of goes into uh, something a little bit more advanced. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of C8 versus C6 technology. As applied to? Uh, textiles, finishes. Okay. Um, there was a great movie uh, starring Mark Ruffalo opposite, um, God, who was the female lead? Cannot recall at this moment. Um, I think it was called Dark Waters or Black Water or something like that. Okay. And it goes into the history of these compounds and the lawsuits that resulted and stuff we were finding out about bioaccumulation and 
these compounds that we were using on all of our fabric seats and on our frying pans and everywhere being found in, like, penguins just hanging out in their bloodstream. And so what our company did was we took a modified version of this very bad molecule um, known as PFOA or PFOS. It was shorter, non-bioaccumulative. -bio it was starting to hit the industry. And we slapped that onto this nanoparticle backbone, which dramatically increased how much effect you got from using a very small amount of this compound. So even though there was nothing out there saying, hey, this stuff might still be bad for you, we said, well, we're going to minimize using it without getting rid of it completely because of how incredibly effective it was. Hmm. And what kind of uh, industries would be purchasing this material? So still automotive. Automotive was number one consumer. Um, bedding, um, usually not apparel. Apparel is a very tricky industry. Once a major apparel manufacturer finds someone, they don't change it. And they tend to find someone based on who can buy them the best dinner. <laughs> I mean, if it's quality product that they're getting, I guess that's all right. Well, you know how big business is. They will sacrifice quality if it means that they get a slightly nicer night out on the town. So sad to think of it that way. But at the end of the day, all, all the things I've complained about uh, in general with, with, uh, with government and big, big business, that's exactly how it plays out sure. after the boardroom. You're right. Um. How long did you work for those guys? And and uh, and 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 obviously the patent process you dealt with as well, right? Um, so talk about a little bit about that for people so they understand. Sure, I worked for them for five years. Um, they had all their patents done and ready by the time I was there, and I had taken over as lead chemist. Um, but uh, my patent experience is actually um, personal. That's with my family. Uh, my mom got bored and started de designing a uh, a detergent for clothing. Now she's making her own soap and she's just like, hey, what if I just put soap in water and put it on my clothes? And it didn't work awesome. And so I went over and I'm like, well, let's try this. Let's try this. Let's balance an emulsion. Let's make a dry powdered formula someone can add water to and voila, you have a stable detergent that works. And so we spent some time at that. And uh, when it came time for her to file patents, because my mom is an amazing person, got bored one summer spent six months studying, and then passed the New York State patent bar exam. Uh, <laughs> this is to add a skill to her, everything else. <laughs> yeah, she got tired of having other people write her patents for her. So when it came time to write a patent, she's like, well, can you write this part, this part, and this part? And I said, sure. Interesting. So so I was just talking to someone from the Monroe County Library System who, who talks about patents and that kind of thing for the cannabis industry, and it's very tricky to do that in the cannabis industry you really can't patent something for thc so you have to there's workarounds and 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 they they help you with that so um how long did it take you and your you or your mother to go through this process to get this uh detergent that who you two you guys worked on together um and did she ever put it to market uh i want to say it took the better part of two years um the patent had to get split into two parts a whole set of methods claims and a whole set of formulations claims. Those became two separate patents. That's why I have two patents. They're for the same product. Um, and then there's a further uh, trademarking of like bottle designs. Um, worked very closely with her notary. Uh, notary is actually second author. I'm third. And based on who did however much work in the writing, that's 100% that's correct. Okay. Interesting. 
Um, has the product ever gone to market, or what makes this product better than other detergents, I guess? It never went to market. Um, we had a couple of people who were interested. Uh, so a little bit about laundry detergents. If you want them to work, you are going to need to put enzymes in them because those enzyme, enzymes are going to attack protein stains and fat stains and things that have bound and cross-linked and polymerized all over your clothing. Uh, whatever they may be, I'm not here to judge. Um, <laughs> and uh, if you want to put enzymes into your material, those enzymes are going to be GMOs. Okay, we had to trick some bacteria into making those uh, in such a quantity of such a quality that they are financially viable to sell. And so if you say this to a small uh, or even large company that prides themselves on all natural products, well, the rest of the product is all natural, but the enzymes, yes, they came from a GMO. And the second they hear that word, deal's done. What's your opinion on those? I, I know, and explain a little bit of why there's such a negativity of GMOs out there, I guess. Sure. Um, so GMOs are scary because we, as humanity, have decided to start tinkering with uh, that basic language of life. And that really turns some folks off because who knows what you've done while, you've, when, while you were in there. Who knows what gene you interrupted? Who knows if you happened to put something in the wrong place and now something that was making a helpful protein is now making poison? Now, we know, of course. We do the testing. But there's that fear that we missed something and that maybe some byproduct of our tampering has produced a slow-acting carcinogen and no one's going to know about that for 30 years and suddenly everybody's going to get liver cancer or something. I'm not going to say that's impossible. I don't think it's a valid concern, but I'm not going to say it's impossible. Stranger things have happened. Right. And now there's, of course, an additional pushback against GMOs because of some of the very bad behavior we've seen out of companies like, I don't know, Monsanto, to name one, that everyone hopefully knows. Uh, I don't want to explain that a little bit. I don't believe you, but I will. Uh, you don't know Monsanto? Really? Okay, so Monsanto makes Roundup. You know what Roundup is. Yeah, I know from there forward. I just didn't know that was it. But go ahead, please. Yeah, let's talk about it because it's important. Sure. Especially talk about growing. Yeah. So Roundup is just one of many pesticides they make. Monsanto also makes plants or works with the companies that make plants. I'm not 100% on it. You know, I read the articles, don't retain everything. Mm -hmm. They are in some way connected to a company or are the company that makes plants that have been genetically modified that are immune to those various pesticides and herbicides that you spray down their fields with. Now, they own the genetic code of those plants. No one can sell those plants. If you're a farmer who has bought those plants, you're not allowed to reseed them because, well, that's not your IP. And that's just kind of fundamentally evil. And so... These days, a lot of those concerns over GMOs are really more about what sort of bastardry our big business is going to get up to with them and less about, is this secretly going to give me cancer? It's a great point. It's a check. Mm -hmm. And it's a check that's needed for everything we see in big business. When we're already seeing it in uh, the cannabis space. Everybody's talking about genetics. Everybody's talking about proprietary genetics. And it doesn't have to be a GMO 
for someone to say, hey, we own this strain. We came up with it. Nobody else is allowed to use it. And those are the court cases we're going to see very, very soon. I'm interested. Uh, we haven't seen that a lot already in Colorado, Oregon, and, and California. So that's why I'm really curious to see how this is going to go. Because I, I don't believe these big companies. Let's talk about someone like a Runtz, right? Right. Um, let's say they have bad packaging out there, right? Or people that say they have the Runtz blends or whatever. So now a company like that has two ways to go about that, right? They, they can litigate what's happening or make stronger their packaging of their own products. So the, the products that are aftermarket or whatever, black market, um, you can tell right away that they're not the original Runtz packaging. Um, so it's tough for a company like that, right, that doesn't want to be a jerk, but it's either litigation or flood the market with the good stuff and have to change packaging. Um, well, it's not just packaging. It's let's say somebody else comes out and says, hey, we have a Runtz bud and we're going to sell it. What are you going to do about it? That's the position these companies are in. Right. Yeah. And if their genetics are proprietary and they have been registered on a national level, which they can't be yet, but the second we see national legalization, they will be. And it's not even what if Runtz doesn't want to be a bad guy. It's what if, you know, someone from a much larger company, um, I don't know, pick your least favorite nicotine company and have them step forward. And they say, hey, you have a really strong brand. We're going to give you $500 million. Give us your company. No one's going to say no to that in this industry. The state could stop it, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. The American government is definitely going to step in and stop a giant merger or an acquisition. Or The states already love vertical integration. Yeah, but fortunately, New York's not being set up that way. No, that, that's great. But uh, there are states, so what you're saying is happening in Oregon, for instance, right now. So it's happening in Massachusetts. <coughs> correct. In Oregon, uh, there's a lawyer on the New York Growers of Processor Association Processors Committee that is out of Oregon, and he told a story last week where one of his favorite farms in Oregon is just put itself up for sale. And it was the one he thought that could kind of last among the big conglomerates out there because you got a bunch of seed to sale out there. Uh, and I don't remember, I don't want to quote Andrew right now, but it's either three or five companies own the market in Oregon right now. And all the small farmers are now slowly falling off and everybody who thought it was going to be exciting and everything. And now all these companies now have the genetics. So imagine now if it goes national and Schumer's plan goes through Charles Chuck Schumer to go national, I'm worried the way he's going to roll it out because it could enable companies like that to just now set up in all the states that now don't have any legalization and just own the market nationally. Well, exactly. And I mean, once it's legal national, states will actually have to say, no, we're going to pass a law just to make it illegal here. And good luck doing that. Even if it will go backwards. No, it's just not going to happen. What it will do, the only good thing it'll do for everybody is it'll take THC off of Schedule 1, which will then allow the banks to deal with it just like any other business. That's really the only benefit to it being nationally legalized in my mind. No, there's that. And yeah, like you said, the loans. Um, even just taking payment is complicated. Um, but also national regulation would be awesome. I would love some new rules nationally coming down, like give it to the FDA, let them write a hundred pages about what you can and can't have in a THC product. Like let, let's protect some people here. If we're going to legalize, it shouldn't all be about money. 
That's right. It should be the FDA. And hopefully the FDA won't be manipulated through the process. But yeah, the FDA definitely needs to come on one side or the other, especially now with all the information they have about CBD that's been given to them over the last two years through their collection and they haven't announced it to any of us yet, what they've collected. If it was negative, we would have heard about it already. Well, you might be a little behind there. As far I know, I know it's been the reports have been given, but they haven't been announced what they what they said unless you've seen something different. Just some preliminary stuff. Uh, just some, just uh, let's see. There was a video put out. Cannot cite it. Can't remember who it was. Something shown to me, um, but it was somebody who you know starts off by like, "Hey, here's my degree. Here's where I work. Here are some studies I'm seeing when it comes to CBD interactions with pharmaceuticals." Turns out it has a lot. In theory, again, we need to do the big studies. We need to throw money at it. So you're talking about cannabis in related to what people are already taking as pills in their body. Correct. I just want to make sure everybody's yeah. clear on that. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, there's definitely the studies that need to be done on this. For instance, how is cannabis and alcohol reacting with the studies that I have seen and read over the last five years have stated that beer and whiskey are kind of like gluten and, and cannabis is trying to get gluten out of your system as the cannabis is processing in their system a little bit. Um, and that's why people at the end of the day feel lethargic or want to get sick after they've been drinking and then they try and smoke a joint in a night. It's actually that that's trying to kind of work out of your body. Um, so my question, my question is those studies, that's got to go so deep because each individual pill is going to have different side effects relating to cannabis in my mind, right? Because it's, it's how you also how your endocannabinoid system reacts to the whole thing. Well, sure. And all these studies are done based off of, you know, what percentage of the study group had an adverse reaction, you know, and that, that's how you decide, okay, do we need a label for this? Do we need a warning label for this or not on the side of a pill bottle? Because these warnings aren't going to go on the side of a medicinal cannabis pill bottle. They're going to go on the side of your bottle of antidepressants or uh, mood stabilizers or heart medication or digestive medication. You know, any bottle that has do not mix with alcohol is now a bottle where you have to say, okay, is it also going to have to say do not mix with THC products, do not mix with CBD products. And that's, that's where just, the danger is going to be. Yeah, that's, that's actually a very valid point. I like that. I have never heard that perspective before, but I can see where that would take time to develop that. Uh, that's a fair point. Yeah, and I, I mean, we've already discussed um, privately uh, THC interactions with SNRIs. Now, there's not a ton of people on SNRIs. Most people don't even know what they are. But as a typical anti-anxiety medication class, well, people who are anxious are probably going to, somebody's going to pass them a joint and say, here, this might help. Well, if you're on an SNRI and you do THC, they have this bizarre multiplicative effect, not in everyone, but in enough people where you're going to start hearing about this being a bad interaction. Now, what's an SNRI? So an SNRI is a selective norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. And what's um, an example of one? Oh, gosh. I would have to look it up. Um, there's at least one anti-anxiety med out there that's pretty popular. It's an SNRI. So it's an anti-anxiety medicine, typically, essentially. Typically. Okay. And that makes sense. I mean, because cannabis already should, uh, CBD especially, should provide anti-anxiety. So now, now you're kind of uh, multiplying that. I, I can see where that would be an issue. The little things we have to think about as we get into this industry. All right. And those drug interactions are going to matter. They're going to matter a lot. And again, that's not just THC. That's CBD. That's CBN. That's CBG. That's THCV. That's CBDV. That all these miners that are going to start popping up in larger and larger quantities because they're being touted as a new wonder drug and how they interact with what you're already taking. 
So SNRIs, antidepressant SNRIs help relieve depression symptoms such as irritability and sadness, but some are also used for anxiety disorders and nerve pain. Um, serotonin uh, inhibitor, basically. Uh, serotonin and no norepinephrine. Norepinephrine. Thank you. Uh, Reup inhibitors are a class of medications that are effective in treating depression. So, okay, so everybody knows what SNRI means. Yeah, so there's a couple of big brands out there, but there aren't a ton. But yeah, but then again, there's other various pills and medications. And uh, like I said, there's a laundry list of things that we are suspecting may interact with CBD because of how many places in your body CBD goes. It's amazing. I don't. I know I don't think about this because I don't take any pills in my body. Well, yes, I know. THC is your wonder drug. Not the wonder drug, but um, I don't mix, so I don't ever worry about it's really mixing with other things, so I don't even think about that. Something, you know how it is. Everybody thinks about what's in their life and now what's going on with others, but um, people who take pills certainly should think about how they take anything, and then cannabis is no different. You're right. Well, also, I mean, I am a millennial, which means half of my friends suffer anxiety and the other half are chronically depressed. Oh, gosh. That is a crazy, crazy... And what do you think the root of that is? <laughs> um, I think that there's a lot of things that came together to make that happen. Uh, on the one hand, you know, I mean, who are our parents? Mostly baby boomers. Um, and they have been introduced to the wonderful world of pharmacokinetics and pharmacopoeia. And they see these pills and they have these these children who are having difficulties uh, with life and they don't want their kids to have difficult lives. They don't want them suffering and being anxious and being depressed and panicking over their low grades or whatever is going on. And they say, Hey, doctor, what do I do? And well, this, again, the wonderful age of um, pharmacopoeia, the doctor is getting a kickback every time he sells uh, a thing of Flexeril or a thing of uh, any antidepressant, anti-anxiety, the pharmacy companies have so much money, they can kick back doctors all day. So we start getting drugged to the gills from the time we're young. And for some of us, absolutely, it's what we need. Some of your peers, uh, would you say a lot of your peers were on some kind of medication growing up, ADHD or or what you just described, any of that? Would you What would you say percentage of your peers that were, took something as kids? Good Lord, percentage? Because for me, it was zero. Like, there was nobody in oh, my not zero. time. Well, Definitely not zero. I'm talking about actually, like, you're right, it wasn't zero. Um, it probably was about 20%, I would say, maybe. I mean, I barely, none of my friends took any kind of pills at all. I mean, I can only my speak whole circle. to my friend group. Not And that's what I'm talking to, too. That's the only thing I have as well, so. Uh, growing up, my friend group, probably one in ten. Maybe more. It's not something you talk a ton about. You know, we've only really just recently started to destigmatize mental health issues. Interesting. For us, it was just like uh, I was worried in eighth grade. I didn't want to try beer at a party. That was the worst of what we dealt with. Like eighth grade, maybe Lord. smoking pot around that time too. But I didn't even do that till after junior in high school. So that wasn't even pressured on me prior to that. Um, different age. That's why I'm very. You're right, though. There is a lot of anxiety in, in that generation. Well, not only that, but I mean. Look at what we've grown up with. I mean, I was in third grade, I believe, when the Twin Towers fell, and it's all been downhill from there. That's exactly right. You, you've seen nothing but um, turmoil. And I mean, you know, I got to college right when we were hitting $50,000 a year tuition plus housing. 
And we had a bunch of parents who said, college? That costs what, five grand? You would just work a part-time job and pay your way through, right? And there's just this incredible divide for how things were, how we were told things were going to be versus how things ended up being. And I don't want to, you know, sound like I'm whining here. You're not. No, because that's exactly what happened. 100%. When I went to school, I think tuition was about uh, 11000 all in, 12000 That was a 90, 90 to 95. Um, and at that point, I could do that exact model. That's what happened. So my dad, the first two years, he paid for my school for me. But the last two years, I, I did them on my own with, with student loans and a part-time job. Um, and that's how I did it. And then I had to pay back those student loans till it ended. But that was so much less than the tuition was, it rate is now for you guys. Yeah. And not only that, but then we got out of school. And what are our degrees worth? Well, it turns out not that much. The value's coming back now, but back then, no. Well, the value's coming back now, depending on what your degree was in. Because don't forget, we weren't just told, hey, you want to be an engineer, you'd better go to school. We were told, hey, you'd better go to college, period. And then you had a bunch of people coming out with liberal arts degrees, writing degrees, English language degrees, uh, history degrees. And I'm in no way trying to disparage these degrees. One of my happiest friends uh, went to school for his history degree, but he doesn't use it. After school, he became a chef. Uh, good for the Buffalo Bills for a little while, which is really cool. Got a lot of good stories out of that one. Then he went into logistics. Started making great money. Uh, I mean, then COVID closed everything down, and now he's a professional video game streamer for the daytime while his uh, partner works uh, at the local hospital arranging organ transplants. Um, not to not to dox my buddy. Talk about but, pivoting, though. I mean, that's someone who pivoted four times, and he's in his early 30s, right? Yeah, same age. Well, actually, slightly younger than me. Uh, and he's happy. He's really happy. So he took advantage of the experience, gained uh, his history degree while he's not using it. He gained some perspective on life probably through learning history, um, learned discipline through having to complete the program and get his good grades. So, uh, and then he came out and has now used that in other things. I kind of done the same thing and I, and I commend him. That's great. Well, sure. Absolutely. Um, again, great dude, happy dude, but he's not out there using a history degree and he hasn't since he got out of school. Yeah, and that degree didn't pay for the paying back that college loan. Exactly. Now, I mean, I went to El Chipo uh, Public School for the latter few years of my college experience. Um, UB's not a bad school. UB's a great school, and it's cheap because it's public. Man, it's not Geneseo. It's cheap, public, and not Geneseo. So, uh, although I can't say cheap if I'm talking about Geneseo. I didn't realize that was more expensive than some of the other schools. Oh, yes. Interesting. Not all these SUNY system schools cost the same amount of money. Oh, that's true. I knew that, but I didn't realize they were one of the higher ones. That's interesting. Mostly a teaching school, right? Geneseo? Oh, they actually have an excellent science uh, division there. Excellent. I didn't know that. So let's talk science-y. Okay. Um, you jumped in the cannabis industry in uh, two feet, and you have done phenomenal. Uh, but you really went to an event recently out in San Diego. Uh, and I want you to tell me what the event was and kind of what your expectations leading into it were and what you got out of it. And uh, and then we'll go further after that. But let's start with that. Yeah. So I went to the Emerald Conference a few weeks ago in beautiful San Diego. Um, 
Uh, I believe everybody was super jealous of me, and they should have been because I didn't see a cloud in the sky for three days straight, middle of winter. So San Diego stories really are true. There's never a cloud in the sky. Uh, I think I might have seen one or two. Uh, otherwise, yeah, it was an amazing event, and it was, is probably the most science-oriented event in the United States regarding cannabis. Uh, this was not a 10,000 person, everybody show up and come look at booths event. This was a real conference. Uh, there were a couple hundred attendees. Uh, we took over a small resort and uh, the two days that they were having, they, they were having events or having um, talks, about eight talks a day. And they ranged from um, case studies of uh, cannabis helping people undergoing cancer all the way over to how to dial in uh, your instrument when it comes to checking the particle size of a nano solution you've made. Completely ran the gamut. We talked about everything. Most presenters were excellent. There are a couple of kind of embarrassing ones, uh, but most presenters fantastic, very knowledgeable in their field and very happy to talk to you outside of their presentation. So you got more of it than you thought? Because I know when you went there, you had mixed feelings of, I wish, you know, I was a grower, I had a grower with me, but uh, it sounds like uh, you really made made the most out of the whole thing. I still wish I had a grower with me while I was out there. Uh, probably a third of the talks really just applied to growers, including one all about applying artificial intelligence uh, to your greenhouse for real-time feedback and adjustments to, like, watering amounts and light amounts and stuff like that. Um, wow. Almost, really, almost like mushrooms and AI, what mushrooms do for plants and soil in a, in a forest through AI. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, a, a good grower will also have a decent mycology going uh, amongst the root systems, so long as they're indoors. Outdoors, you just, you know, you let it go. Um, but yeah, no, uh, so many different things to talk about. I wish I had a grower with me. Uh, I wish I had just like one more body to wander around these networking events and talk with people. Um, but it was a great time. I met some amazing people, talked about uh, some really up-and-coming studies and products. Uh, there's a company out of Canada making uh, molecular sponges out of simple um, uh, sugar units. And those sponges can be dialed in by activating uh, certain sites on them to catch very particular cannabinoids. And then you just wash it out very cheaply and you have a magical powder in your hand and you heat it up, and suddenly you have isolate. Are you kidding me? They're working on it right now. There's another company. They had a pot-smoking robot, and their robot that smoked pot would uh, immediately take all that smoke and put it right through a couple different particle analyzers um, and pump out just raw data as to what exactly is somebody breathing depending on what they just inhaled and the temperature at which it's burned and the form that it has when it's burned. You know, what are you getting off of a dab versus off of a joint versus off of a bowl versus out of a cartridge? Um, and honestly, some of the stuff they're seeing is kind of scary. I was just going to say, what, tell, tell, I mean, what can you recall of this? Because I, 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 you and I have not talked in depth about this, so I, I want to hear it all. Like, like, do you remember what you saw or, or what was intriguing about this? So this, uh, that was actually a side bit for what this presenter uh, was actually presenting on, but we talked about it later. And uh, the biggest thing that jumped out at me was uh, kind of the dread in this guy's voice when he was talking about testing certain dabs. 
uh, especially certain like kinds of dabs, like um, diamonds and sauce. Don't, don't dab diamonds and sauce. I'm, I'm just going to say that right now. Just don't do it. Why? Byproducts. The terpene content is so high, exposing that to a very high temperature. It's not next to the other cannabinoids and waxes and phytocannabinoids that are going to kind of protect those terpenes. Um, and they'll split apart, they'll break, they'll uh, isomerize, they'll generate um, uh, linked pi bond systems all through them. Um, and you're effectively breathing, you know, benzene. I've always been scared about dabs. Uh, so again, dabs in general, not necessarily bad. It's all about that terp content. It's all about that temperature. It's all about the potential for something bad to happen. You said there was something about cancer patients. Like, uh, were, were, did they talk about like cannabis for cancer patients? Like talking about like best delivery methods or anything like that? Or what did they talk about? Do you remember? So it was a case study. And I have a lot of trouble talking about it without sounding very cynical, but I will do my best. Um, I'm going to fail at this real hard. No, you're okay. It's okay to be cynical. That If you don't think the information's legit, we don't have to mention. I'm just curious what might be coming about. I think the information was legitimate, but it's a case study. So it's just one person. And that person was the presenter's wife. So you've got a lot tied up in this case study. And she had breast cancer. And, you know, she was doing this much THC and CBD in a day through edibles. Um, and she was also consuming a certain quantity of psychedelic mushroom. But she was also taking her uh, medication as prescribed. Um, so you have all these moving parts and variables. And despite all the data shown, and she's had a miraculous recovery, a fantastic recovery, Despite all that data shown, the only conclusion that can really be drawn is doing drugs makes recovering from cancer a better time. <laughs> and I mean, Interesting. that's kind of a no-brainer. Yeah. I mean, everyone you see that goes through it, uh, anybody that allows THC to be part of it, usually uh, it, it's certainly helpful, not something they say, I wish I didn't have that through the process. Right. If you're having a bad time and you're stuck in bed and it's an awful experience of going through chemo, I don't know, go get stoned. Might be a better time. Like that's, I, I don't need a, an extensive um, single person study to tell me that. You did talk about another study though that very, very much intrigued me um, that you were a little skeptical about, but you thought it was a big enough study that uh, some of the results could be good. It had something to do about daily intake of CBD. Oh, yeah. Um, so this was another weird one. And uh, this, this study actually has a funny uh, story attached to it. So the methods are not awesome here, but when you're not getting funding, you make do. So, you know, this, this group wanted thousands of people to participate in their study, and they wanted to be super inclusive. They didn't want to leave people out who are typically left out in medical studies. Um, majority of medical studies for the longest time most participants are white guys, typically between the ages of 24 and like 50 or so. Um, they didn't want to fall into that trap. So they're finding applicants from across the United States. They're sending them um, publicly available CBD supplements. Um, 
they're not modifying the supplements. They're telling people to take them as is, uh, take them as prescribed. So in avoiding the pitfalls that other studies fell in, uh, they, they stumbled into one they were not foreseeing. 94% of the people in their studies were women. Okay. Now that's not good. No, you, you want to balance a 50-50, obviously. Exactly. But, so, but of the women, what were the results? Uh, so there was an indication that if you take CBD every day, less is more. And I'm not going to say, you know, oh, you take one milligram, you're going to have a great time, your life will be uh, so much better. But the study showed that people taking in that two to five milligram range on a daily basis generally, gen, I have to stress the word, generally. It's like anything. Mm -hmm. uh, well, again, I, I'm trying to be a scientist about this. I will not make any absolute statements here. Two to five milligrams in women, generally speaking, uh, resulted in a uh, general improvement in sleep, in mood, um, and general outlook on life. Oh, anxiety. Anxiety as well. Reduce anxiety. Yes. Anxiety. Interesting. Um, what else did you take out of this uh, event? I mean, two days. I know it's a lot of information. Any any other interesting like uh, uh, tidbits that came out? Uh, a lot of it's really technical stuff. Mm -hmm. um, again, stuff about nano emulsions, uh, micro emulsions, uh, how to measure them, uh, how to balance them. A lot about you know CO two extractions. Just the real nitty gritty stuff of our field. And I guess that's a good good thing to let's go right into what you do on a daily basis now. That's, that's what I've been wanting to talk about the whole time. And uh, so let's get into a little bit about what you like most about your job now. There's a lot of things I like about what I'm doing right now. Um, but I think, I think my favorite thing about where I work is that there is the small business environment. You know, everybody's wearing a lot of different hats. But there's also a lot of freedom and creativity to explore and make that next big product. But the resources are not the resources of your typical small business. Some of the toys available to me are really fantastic. And if we want to do something new and I say, hey, I need $10,000 for a machine that can help me do this. And I use that word need, which I use very rarely because I know it's power. I get it. So... What uh, what product do you have in your mind now that you would like to make? Like what what as far as you and I talk a lot about people's health, right? It's making products to make people's lives better, and you know that's where I come from. Where everything I want to I want to mm -hmm. try to help make people's lives better. Um, so what do you have in your mind uh, along those lines? So a lot of the products I would like to make are just modifications of things we already do. Um, a personal story regarding our products helping people. Uh, my grandma was recently moved up here. Uh, she's later on in life, not super mobile. Um, you know, just, just in that age of decline. Uh, she's at a local old folks home and she's getting old. So she, her body's not producing collagen so much anymore. She'll get skin tears and rashes and healing that becomes a problem. Turns out. Our balm really helps her heal, really helps 
her skin. And I would never in a million years have guessed that this is an application for a CBD balm that we make. But my mom, you know, tried it out. I did it on her skin, said, yeah, I'll try this on grandma. And it works wonders. And being able to take that information and say, okay, let's formulate something. We want to make a balm for the elderly. Great. Let's take out some of those irritants. Let's get that menthol out of there. Let's make sure that whatever we're putting in is soft and something that, you know, old papery skin won't find too irritating. Let's dial in a product to help people in the best way we can. And that's, folks, where time comes into the whole thing. It just takes time to build these product lines. And I want to make sure that that was expressed through Seth now as far as as new companies come up, don't walk into dispensaries thinking everything's going to be perfect and all the products are going to be perfect. Uh, I shared a story in the past. I'll share it again. The first time I walked into a dispensary in Massachusetts, there was one open in the state. I got there. I didn't have to really wait in line, luckily. Uh, when I did get there, I bought chewables. So when I opened up the bottle of chewables, there was a packet of sugar that you had to mix with the chewables yourself because they hadn't even got to the point where they could figure out how to make their gummies with sugar on them so they didn't go bad. Um, so our industry is going to be a little better than that and a little more advanced than that. But just know that I believe there's going to be a flux of products on the shelves, not on the shelves, different types of products uh, and a little bit's going to be on consumer demand and a little bit's going to be on what the processors can do in the first 12 months. And I mean, to that point, there is a small blessing in us being so unregulated as a manufacturer. Because if we say, hey, turns out the way we're making a gummy right now, turns out that's not optimal. We need to change an ingredient. But we, we can just do that. There's no massive company saying, or massive organization saying, hey, oh, you want to change an ingredient? Okay, here's 20 forms. Here's the new product. You have to, it has to be visually distinct from your previous product, all that stuff. No, we'll just make a change on the label and the next run, it'll just be different. With the COA to match it, yep, to make the change. Of course, absolutely. Every batch has its own COA, but I mean, no COA that we get is going to be looking at the thing we changed. That's exactly right. Um, now there's something, now we talk about work, we've talked about everything that led you to work, but there's behind the scenes, there's a different Seth, right? There's you and their friends, you, you obviously don't go home and talk about science because if you did, I'd think you're weird. Uh, but you do go home and have a personal life. Uh, and I know that you are kind of, uh, you have kind of a leadership role in some of the things you do, but, uh, gaming is, is something you do, but I'm, I'm not using the word term correctly. Um, so, so Seth, tell me a little bit what you do in your, in your free time. And I know your, your friends love you for what you do. Uh, so t let's talk about your personal life a little bit as far as, uh, what's what your hobby. Uh, you warned me you were going to bring this up. I did. Uh, and you half smiled then, but yeah, you're going to have to deal right, with it. Right, you're actually doing it. Um, <laughs> yeah, so... Um, and folks, I'm doing this because I want to learn, so just so we know. Yeah, so you can just skip the next 15 minutes. It's fine. <laughs> uh, so I, I have... I'm in a bit of a lull at the moment, but I've played a lot of D&D. &D, and I use that term very broadly. D&D uh, uh, &D is Dungeons and Dragons? Yes. Uh, and, and just so everybody knows, I did dabble in Dungeons and Dragons back in my high school days, and I did enjoy it, uh, and I understand it a little bit, so that's why I'm, I'm very intrigued by this, because there may be a point where I may want to add it in my life again as something, as a, as a hobby. My son, not a hobby, but something to do, so that's why I'm intrigued by this. So, so go ahead, Seth, sorry. No, yeah, no, it's, it's probably changed quite a bit. Um, the math has gotten easier, believe it or not, though that, that's kind of new. Um, 
God, where do you even start with that one? So when I say D&D, I'm using this as a catch-all term. Uh, the more correct term would be TTRPG, which is a tabletop role-playing game. And that encompasses, sure, your sword and sorcery, uh, wizards and warriors in, you know, times of old slaying dragons. Sure, there's, there's always a little bit of that going on. But you want to tell a science fiction story set in a cyberpunk future. There's a game for that. Uh, you want to tell something where, or tell a story where you're all five little voices in some guy's head taking turns controlling him through a day. There's literally a game for that. Uh, Call of Cthulhu, if you're familiar with the works of H.P. Lovecraft, that's got its own system. Uh, there's systems for noir storytelling. Um, one of my favorites involves running around cities pretending to be vampires. Uh, it's any story you want to tell, any bit of make-believe, any difficult subject you want to examine. There's a system for that. So you, so you kind of, uh, on a nightly basis, I know you, you run games at times and you actually create stuff. So, so let's talk about that a little bit. And then you're creating for what, like a group of four or five people at a time kind of thing? Or is it sometimes online with more? Give, give me a little bit of both, both sides of that. It depends. Uh, typically, like my ideal group size is three to five. Um, I actually did it professionally for, very, for a very short period of time. Uh, turns out taking money for it uh, ruins the entire experience. Uh, otherwise, because higher expectations on you? Well, you're really focusing on pleasing people. And the folks you are trying to impress aren't necessarily going to be folks you like. And putting in that kind of work uh, into something creative, into something you love, the money makes it more difficult. It, it makes it harder to justify what you're doing because now you're doing it for the money and not for the love of it. Uh, there's, there was a brief study that came out, um, better part of 20 years ago, um, all about, uh, gosh, what is the term? Hi, dog. <laughs> Gunther's upstairs barking. Um, cute pup, by the way. Yes, he is. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember the name of the bias. Uh, justification bias. There we are. There's a study on justification bias where a, a university had in a, bunch of folks, um, some students, some off the street, and half of them, they said, you know, here's a big, uh, here, here's a very simple task we need you to do. And that simple task ended up being incredibly boring. It took like an hour. It was just no damn fun. And uh, they gave like five bucks and said, you know, thanks for coming by here. Please fill out this exit interview. And the exit interview was like, hey, would you think of this? Would you recommend this to anyone else? Um, you know, how, would you, that would would you tell your friends and family to come by and do this study? And another group, they gave 50 bucks. And the group that got 50 bucks were less likely to recommend the study to friends and family than the group that got $5. Now, this is called justification bias because the group that got $5 for all their time and effort, they know their time is worth more than $5. So why did they do the study? Well, they have to justify it to themselves. They have to say, well, it wasn't that bad. Um, whereas the folks who got 50 bucks, well, they know what their time is worth. It was absolutely worth that $50. That was awful, but they got 50 bucks. So just a little weird psychological things that happen, thing that happens to all of us. And when I was running games professionally, boy, did it hit me. Because I was getting good money, but I was not enjoying myself. And that's half the battle. 
you really want to be, and that's, I think I started this whole interview as, uh, you know, do you, do you enjoy going to work? And it kind of relates right to that. If you don't enjoy what you're doing, then, then find something else to do. Um, because that, that's when you know you've, you've exhausted where you're at. Or maybe it just means you need to pay me more. <laughs> that's always, everybody needs <laughs> to get paid more. Reimbursement's always top on everybody's list. Um, so what was, uh, Duggins and Dragons for me was just so much different. Um, and you talk about math. So when you run a game, you're basically someone will roll a dice and you kind of say what the next scenario is. Uh, I'm trying to understand functionally for people like what that really means, these role-playing games. Yeah, so it's different for everyone functionally. You know, no one's going to run the same game as someone else, especially if you're not running out of like a pre-written module and you're kind of doing your own thing. And that's what I wanted to bring up is you actually write your own modules as well, right? Uh, they're not as formal as a module should be, but I, I mean, I wing it half the time. I'm not going to lie. No, that's okay. I'm seat of your pants. Yep, that's okay. Um, but yeah, so my interpretation of what I do, which is going to be very different from other people's, is I am a world. I am a setting. Uh, I am something for people to experience, and ultimately I want my players to tell me a story. I want to lay the table out. I want to set it. And I want them to come down, and then they provide the food. Uh, and by and large, that works. You know, you lay out the groundwork. Oh, yeah, there's a, a town dealing with some socioeconomic shortcoming. Uh, maybe a rich kingdom nearby has come in and started buying up properties, and now they're setting the new values, and the villagers can't afford to live there anymore because they're just, um, you know, lumber uh, they're, they're, they're just all a bunch of lumberjacks, and this is a long time ago. I know lumberjacks these days make bank. Um, but, you know, uh, folks with axes in the Middle Ages, not so much. Uh-huh. Uh, what do we do about rising rent prices? Hey, heroes, come on through. You want to slay some nobility for us? You don't? Do you have a better idea? And just going into that and seeing how the players interact with these settings and situations, I find it so enjoyable. I find it intriguing that you, uh, a lot of times science minds don't necessarily look at the psychology of things on top of it too. So I, I, I find that very refreshing with you. Um, what have I missed asking you about that you really wanted to talk about or, or get out as far as, uh, I know you were talking about, you wanted to talk about formulations, things, things that you're enjoying. What, what, anything else exciting that I missed asking you about? Oh gosh. Well, this industry, there's a million things to talk about, you know, um, I guess, uh, Really, my, my one thing I'd like to talk about is a pet peeve I have, something I see happening in the industry. Okay. Uh, it's something I brought up before, um, but I'm certainly going to bring it up again now, which is I'm seeing more and more laws and more and more regulations pushing edibles, drinkables, otherwise consumables down to very low milligram dosage quantities of THC. And I think it's awesome that those products are there, but the legislation capping um, the potency at these levels, I am very concerned that they are uh, kind of fulfilling their own destiny um, regarding gateway drugs. And that's a dirty term these days. No one believes in gateway drugs anymore. And that's super fair. The idea that somebody went out and smoked a joint means that tomorrow they're going to do cocaine about it. Absolutely not. That's ridiculous. This has been discredited. Uh, Except for alcohol and nicotine actually are proven to allow that, but not cannabis. Because there is a study uh, out of the University of Florida, I believe it was 2011, that shows that alcohol and tobacco are actually gateway drugs, not cannabis. Well, I mean, if the drug they are opening a gateway to is cannabis, I could see it. 
um, because these are all just your basic party substances. So you always got to watch out for those studies because when they say, oh, it is a gateway, well, what's it a gateway to exactly? How do we feel about this? Uh, and half those studies have studies that refute them. Um, pretty much there isn't enough good data to say this is a real effect. However, if somebody is out there and they're saying, hey, this five milligrams of THC is great, but a month later it doesn't hit me quite so hard. I'm going to take two. I'm going to take four. You know what? The only thing that's actually concentrated enough for me to actually enjoy THC anymore is bud or cartridges. Well, now you've just turned a bunch of people who are just trying to enjoy themselves and have some alternative to alcohol or other substances. Uh, you, you've turned them into smokers. And I was very surprised recently to look this up, and this is why you and I had this conversation before, that in most states the cap is t between 20 and 30 milligrams per unit. And we're talking about states that I didn't realize, such as uh, Oregon and Colorado, and I couldn't, uh, per serving, and I couldn't believe it was that low. I mean, uh, state, uh, New York State's going to be taxing based on milligrams. So I can see where if New York State defaults that, it's actually going to save everybody money and taxes buying these concentrates, for instance. So an edible with less milligrams is going to cost you less than tax, the excise tax. Does that make sense? Where, oh, absolutely. Where a dab is going to cost you a lot more because it's more concentrated. And I'm not seeing that in other states. And I'm concerned that, again, once the FDA gets involved, well, what kind of limits are we going to put on these things and how are we going to class them? Like, you know, alcohol, spirits have very different rules than beers do. And I'd like to see that applied in such a way that doesn't guarantee that, using a metaphor, people picking up beers today are going to be picking up bottles tomorrow. That's a great way to, analogy, too. I like the way you reference that. Because really, I wish, I hope New York kind of models the whole trademark and, and licensing and all that kind of similar to alcohol. And that would be another way that it would be very similar in the way alcohol is being used. I know you've mentioned that before. You kind of like the alcohol model for cannabis to follow. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that there's a lot they can do there. And given the general similarities between alcohol and cannabis, just when it comes to a very generic, broad set of effects, um, again, in adult, uh, responsible, moderated quantities, not treating them as similar strikes me as very strange. And let's remind people, since you're in the room, I have a chemist, uh, that edibles, how do edibles and flour uh, affect you and process in your body differently? Just to remind everybody. Yeah, sure. So uh, there's two big major parts to this. Uh, one, the flour is going to hit you instantly. That hits your lungs. Um, immediately after blood hits your lungs, back through the heart, up to the brain. So very fast effect, gets into your blood very quickly, and you could call it less filtered. That's not a great way to put it, but that's the only easy way I can think of off the top of my head. But also, if you're smoking it, you're getting all these minor compounds, um, all these terpenes and modified terpenes based on temperature and phytocannabinoids and all these little nuanced things you're just not going to find in edible. Um, especially, you know, because you've touched it with fire now. Uh, and again, we're probably finding that some of these things are not great for you. Let's not pretend there's zero carcinogens in a joint. Mm -hmm. we, we know there's carcinogens in there. Uh, are they a dangerous quantity? What is the risk they actually pose to uh, 
you know, somebody getting lung cancer as a result? Well, okay, look, the study's not there. That'd be a very expensive study to do. And it's tough because a lot of studies have shown THC opens up the bronchi and it's used in asthma medicine and that kind of stuff. So what he's talking about is not necessarily THC causing that in your lungs, no, but it's if you're not. using a, a joint with paper that's maybe not hemp or a blunt with, with that kind of thing, you're bringing in other things into your lungs other than just the plants where maybe if you smoke through water or a bong, maybe you're going to filter out a little bit of the, the, the badness that might get into you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you shouldn't breathe particulates. I don't care if they're little chunks of gold. Don't put them in your lungs. Um, but we're going to do it. You know, it's, it's probably not going to kill you. Um, probably won't even hurt you. I mean, I've got, you know, friends who smoke constantly. And uh, boy, they've got endurance I envy. Uh, I mean, you, you're... Uh, marathon triathlete? What's your yeah what's the exact, all of it? Uh, all yeah, of, right. yeah, yeah. Three marathons and uh, our uh, let's see, two, three, four, five marathons. Yeah, and Ironman. So yeah, and cannabis usage heavy through it all and all smoking. I mean, yeah, right. Do that right. part of my life. Now, yeah, I think you're probably a freak of nature. But like, if you got friends who do that too, um, get together, find a scientist and have them do a study, because I'm sure that they are looking for people like you to prove a point. It's interesting because I, I think I showed you, but I had a, someone send me results of when I was like just out of college and I was only dabbling then, right? Cause I had a daughter, I was working two, three jobs. So I wasn't consuming a ton of cannabis at that time, but I was fast then. Then you fast forward from 93 to 2005 when I ran the Rochester marathon and I ran a 31123 and qualified for Boston. So that's 12 years there. And my usage was probably pretty steady during that time, maybe increased some, uh, but it didn't deter at all at my ability to run fast, long distances. Because right. I was averaging six-minute miles, five-milers, and in 10Ks then. Right. And now there's a question of, is this a quirk of your genetics, or is this a trend that we can discover? And so, and again, this is another thing about legalization. Once this is legal on a federal level, that means federal grants can start going towards these studies and not just the studies that show that if you smoke a joint, you're going to go to hell, which was uh, <laughs> what most of these studies that were getting funding were trying to prove. Of course. Uh, but uh, just to finish the point now, I just want to make sure you discuss with people how edibles process through your body and how it's different. Yeah, absolutely. So not all edibles are created equal. Um, I've, I've got a rant I've given several of my friends about this. You know, they'll go out and they'll get a nerd's rope that's got 400 milligrams of THC on it and they eat it and they say, oh my God, that's the most stoned I've ever been. And well, okay, yeah, of course it is. But did you really get 400 milligrams of THC worth? Probably not. They probably just sprayed that sucker down. And if you spray something down with distillate, well, it's on the outside. It's all going to come off in your gut and clump together, and you're only going to absorb a fraction of that. Is it a gummy that's had uh, the distillate sort of mixed into it, forming a fairly stable, um, it, it's still technically a kind of emulsion or a, a colloid. Um, it's a gel, which is a kind of colloidal suspension. We don't think of them like emulsions because they're not moving, but the chemistry is very similar. So because you have this stable colloid in a solid form, you've managed to disperse this material and you're absorbing much more of it. But somebody had to go out and make their own gummy and incorporate the material into it for that. And so you're not only going to get more of the THC, you're going to absorb it a little bit faster. 
Maybe instead of getting hit an hour later, you'll get hit half an hour, 45 minutes later. Instead of going through your lungs, through the blood, it's going through then processing through your liver more than likely, right? Well, sure. And I mean, everything that you go through your lungs and all that, most of that will still hit your liver as it's going through your bloodstream. It doesn't hit your brain and stop. Your brain doesn't get all of it. Mm -hmm. So no matter what, your liver is going to be seeing some of this stuff. So all those, there's small rant. There's some studies going on right now saying, hey, if your liver sees THC or THCA or whatever the, whatever the compound we're mad at today is, it might transform it into this other molecule that's actually bad for you. And okay, look, if you smoke, it's still going to get to your liver and it's still going to transform it. It's, it's going to happen. Uh, the only chemistry to worry about is something actively happening in your gut because otherwise it's in your circulatory system. Anything happening when you smoke it is going to happen when you eat it. But again, because it's going in through your gut, it does have to begin circulating through your body. It's going to be a little bit more dispersed. It's going to last a while and it's going to be taken out of your body little by little. Um, so it's going to be a different experience and you know, anyone you talk to is going to say, oh yeah, edibles just hit me different. Well, of course they do. You know, you have a different concentration. You have binders hitting you at different points. Um, you have a different phytocannabinoid load. You have everything. Um, maybe, you know, you'll smoke a joint and you'll say, well, in theory, that joint had 30 milligrams in it. Well, congrats. You got 10 milligrams out of it because you didn't hold it in long enough. Uh, there's so much variability in how you take something, even just along oops, one product type, uh, trying to make generalizations across all product types is ridiculous. There's a big word that's going to come in the industry. I just want to kind of close on this and talk a little bit about nanotechnology. Can you explain to people what it means when they start seeing this word on products? Um, and oil and water can't mix, can it? Uh, well, they can. Um, so, uh, nanotechnology, is referring to the dispersion of cannabinoids across a medium. Now, particularly right now, people are talking about nanoemulsions and microemulsions. Uh, something I learned recently, microemulsions actually have a finer particle size than nanoemulsions due to it being an older word and people using it to describe um, like physically observable characteristics rather than actually measuring particle size. That said, a nanoemulsion and this nanotechnology you'll be hearing about is about these tiny, tiny droplets of cannabinoids uh, suspended in typically water. And those tiny droplets are being held together. They're being held separate from the water. They're forming into something called micelles. And a micelle is an arrangement of these molecules where all the uh, parts of them that like water are pointing out and all the parts that hate it are pointing in. And it's these tiny little spheres. And because they're so small, because they're so separate, because they don't need your body to break them down any more than they already are broken down, they'll all start absorbing through that front portion of your small intestine. Get it small enough, they'll actually start absorbing through your cheeks, your epithelial lining, under your tongue, as you swallow it, even in your stomach itself, which is very bad at absorbing compounds. And because of that, you get all the THC. You get all the CBD. Nothing's flying through you. It's all being absorbed. Uh, this is referred to as bioavailability. And because we've maximized bioavailability and we've maximized how quickly your body can absorb it, um, suddenly how you take in one of these beverages matters. It's not, oh, I'll do an edible. 
I could sip at it or I could chug it. It doesn't matter. It's not going to hit me for an hour anyway. No, no longer the case. You have a nano-emulsed beverage in your hand that's going to be hitting you within 5 to 15 minutes of your first sip. So if you sip that over the course of half an hour to an hour, like, you know, somebody drinking a really nice beer, very different experience than if you chug the sucker. So you see nanoemulsion or nanotechnology, consider how you will consume it because it's going to change things. Is there good and bad products out there? Is there anything people should look for? Because obviously not everybody's going to make this with the same technology. So, so if you're going to educate a consumer, what should they look for in these kind of products? Where maybe uh, would these products not be worth it? And where, what should they consume them in? Well, the most important thing is to make sure that whoever's making the claim can back it up. It's easy to say, hey, it's a nanoparticle. Well, did you have to shake it? Was it where things settling out, falling to the bottom, or floating on the surface? Well, it's not stable. And if it's not stable, that means all those little oil droplets are going to find each other, and they're going to join together and get bigger and bigger. And that's not a nanoparticle anymore. Maybe it was a week ago. Something to look for is things that settle out. So if you have something in a bottle that says nanotechnology and you see some settling in it, that's probably not the quality product you're looking for. Um, and more reducing that particle size is important. Sorry, Seth, go uh, ahead. More importantly than the settling, because we're talking about oils, when you pop something, look on the surface of it. Look around the edges, that meniscus, the little bit of the water that's like hugging your can or bottle. If it looks like there's oil there, there probably is, and it's probably starting to separate out from your drink. Seth, you gave us a lot of good information today. It's been long. I appreciate you. Uh, I'm so excited that your grandmother's used one of the products and, and being used for her legs, and it's actually working. Um, I appreciate you. Thank you for everything. And uh, anything you'd like to tell everybody to remember as we sign off? Uh, well, I'm, for starters, thanks for having me. Uh, I know you've been talking about doing this for a while now. It's good to actually be here. Uh, otherwise, things to remember... Gosh, just get the COA. No matter who you are, no matter what the product is, if you're going out, something from a small business, find their certificate of analysis, check the date on it, check the product code on it, make sure it matches up with what is printed on your bottle because it's the Wild West out there and not everybody's acting in good faith. Amen to that. Thank you, Seth, and happy April. Happy April.